Thanks for listening to part four in the series, The Church Mends the Church. This sermon is called Heavy Burdens, Hard to Bear, and was first preached to City Church in downtown Iowa City on October 10th, 2021. I want to start out by reading a passage from the Gospels to us this morning. As kind of like the guiding frame for uh, the message and what, what we're talking and thinking about today. Um, This is a selection from Matthew 23, verses 1 through 15, and you can read it up on here, but if you can't see or you're at home, you can go to, again, like what Miles said, go to iowacity.church, and on the homepage, you'll see a little button that says service liturgy, and you can pull up the passage that we'll be talking about. So here we go. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all these deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Strong words from Jesus here. Um, I'm going to go back to this passage, and we'll kind of interact with it in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about a dream I had a few weeks ago. Um, If you've been around City Church for a while, you know sometimes they talk about dreams that have everybody dreams. I dream like everyone But once in a while, I'll have dreams that I think are from God, like the Holy Spirit is trying to nudge me or or speak to me or alert me to something. And in this dream I had, I was sitting in a wooden rocking chair, and an old man from a former church I used to go to walked up to me, and he wanted to talk to me. And very shyly, he showed me these two large boils in the palm of his hand. And he asked me to pray for him because he wanted to be healed, and he was... He was weak and he was frail and I had compassion for him in the dream. So I got up from my rocking chair and I was going to offer to let him sit down so he could rest while I prayed for him. And all of a sudden we were just surrounded like by a bunch of people that in the dream I just knew were church people, just non-distinct church people. And they saw that the man was frail and that he was hurting and they were like, oh, here, sit in the rocking chair. And they just pushed him in and when they did that, you could hear his hips crack. Uh, He was so frail and so brittle. And in the dream, I was just horrified that he was injured by these people who were doing something. They were well-meaning. So we all heard his hips crack. And then the church people were like, oh, oh, no, let's take him out of the 
rocking chair. There's a hospital bed over there. We'll go put him in the hospital bed. And so they drag him over the hospital bed. Like three people are putting him in over the railing. Somebody tries to grab his arm, put it over the railing, and they force it a little too hard, and his arm breaks off. It's like so brittle. And again in the dream for the second time, I am horrified that this man who is weak and diseased and asking for help and wanting prayer um, is being even more damaged by the people who are supposed to be the most helpful. The church people kind of just shrug and go, oh, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. understand what happened. And then the dream shifts, and the man in the hospital bed becomes a teenage girl, maybe 12 or 13 years old. And she is sitting now with an older female minister. And the best way I could describe this female minister is just like an old-timey, old-fashioned kind of minister, maybe from a different era in the, in the 20th century. Um, a well-meaning, loving woman who's counseling this girl, but this girl is now completely armless because she used to be the man, right, who lost his arm. She's now completely armless on one side, and she's asking theological questions. She's trying to figure out how a good God could allow this to happen to her and how she could lose an arm if God is good. And she's really having this existential crisis, and she's sharing it with the female minister. And this old-timey, old-fashioned female minister, well-meaning, sits with her, and she says, like, well, honey, you have not thought about all the scriptures about God's goodness. And if you thought of them, you would know that if God allowed this to happen to you, then God did what was best. And once again, for the third time in the dream, I am horrified. And I see the soul of this 12 or 13 year old girl crushed under the weight of what is said to her. Because not only did she not have an arm anymore, she was being told that what any other reasonable person would think of as sad and horrible and devastating was actually good because it was done by a good God or allowed by a good God. And that was the end of my dream. And sometimes when I have dreams, I wake up and I'm puzzled I wasn't puzzled after this dream. I was just simply disturbed. I knew that what I was seeing in my dream was just symbolic of a, a dynamic in Jesus's family on earth, in the body of Christ, where Christians do get wounded by other Christians. And parts of the body of Christ wound other parts of the body of Christ, sometimes through ignorance, sometimes through insensitivity, sometimes through bad theology. <clears throat> I had this dream probably a week after I felt like the Lord was leading me to, to do this series. Um, and in the series in the last few weeks, we have talked about um, how parts of Jesus' church have been harmed at times by the failures of Christian leaders, Christian communities, Christian ministries. If you're sitting here today and you've been here the last few weeks, you probably know multiple stories of people who've been wounded in various ways, or maybe you've observed failures in church communities or in leaders to reflect the character of Jesus and behave in a Christ-like way. Um, over the last few weeks, though, we've talked about the ways that Jesus's body on earth, the church, can heal from these kinds of wounds. We talked about his plan to actually mend his church so that when Jesus returns and comes again to the earth, he will have a church that is free of the stains of sin, sexism, racism, systemic injustice, greed, gossip, uh, the community of, of Christians uh, that Jesus returns to will be more refined, will be fully refined compared to how it is now. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
um, we saw that refining and that healing take place <clears throat> in smaller ways in the early church when we looked at the scriptures from the New Testament. We realized that like the failures of church leadership and church communities isn't new. It's almost as old as Jesus himself. And yet we saw how early Christians were able to confront harm that was being done by um, speaking out against systemic injustice and personal prejudice. And they were able to mend those wounds through the power of the Holy Spirit and through their unity in the body of Christ. So I call this series, The Church Mends the Church, because I think scripture and the activity of the early church really gives us hope and assurance that the member, if the members of Christ's body are wounded by the members of Christ's body, I think they can also be restored by, the, by, the, by Christ's body. So this morning I want to talk about a specific kind of leadership failure and the wounding that it creates and how the church can be involved in wound prevention. So this isn't so much about healing, but maybe wound prevention. And this is something all of us can do. Um, and this leadership failure that I want to talk about, it has something to do with what Jesus describes the leaders in our passage in Matthew 23 as doing, placing heavy burdens on their followers, putting difficult restrictions and requirements on their followers. So I want to look at what Jesus tells the crowd in verses 2 and 3. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. Do I have it in the wrong order, Jace? Why don't you try the next slide, see what happens. Okay, I must have missed that one. Maybe just go back. Go back one more. Okay, yeah, I missed it. I missed, uh, no, 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 here it is. I just have the, the first heading wrong. Okay, sorry guys. So. Do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the religious authorities who helped interpret the law of Moses. Um, they taught the law of Moses, and the law of Moses was basically the law of God as it was written down in the Jewish scripture, revealed to the Jewish people, passed down as their holy scripture. So Jesus says, pay attention to what they teach you from there, but don't imitate what they do because they don't actually do a lot of what they're teaching. And, but then Jesus goes on to say that not only are they hypocrites, but they also make the laws of God impossible to follow. He says in verse 4, which I think, there we go. Uh, I told you it would be my fault if this was <laughs> not correct. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So these scribes and Pharisees, they made it difficult to be a follower of Yahweh because they came up with new rules. They came up with new teachings and new prohibitions and new theologies that they required people to embrace in order to be acceptable to God and acceptable to the religious community. Many of us, if, if we, even if we're not aware of it, have probably been exposed to teachings that make following Christ more difficult than Christ himself would want it to be. And this is not to say that following Christ is easy. I wouldn't tell anybody that. I don't think following Jesus is easy. I think it's costly. I think he tells people, um, his followers uh, in scripture over and over that there's a high cost to following him. Um, he doesn't have a place to lay his head. He's kind of nomadic. 
He wants people to leave behind their families. He wants them to leave behind their livelihoods, sell their goods and give them to the poor. I mean, Jesus doesn't make it easy for people to follow him. Um, in fact, he asks them to lay down idols and things that are more important and get in the way of their worship of him. Um, but I think that many of us have experienced extra biblical rules or theologies or belief systems that are so burdensome that they might actually prevent us from moving closer to God, that actually prevent us from seeing him as he truly is. And what makes these burdensome belief systems so difficult is that they're often rooted in half-truths. They're rooted in something that sounds true. So here's one burdensome theology, for example. I've been in church services where I've heard something exactly like this. If you give an offering to the church, you will literally get your money back 10 times the amount that you give. But you have to give in faith or you won't get anything back from God. So single mom, I know you're sitting right there. We want you to give the most sacrificial gift you can give because that shows true faith, and then you will see that God gives you all this extra money in return. How many of you guys have heard a version of this somewhere? Yes, I'm seeing some heads nod, yes. So this belief system is harmful for one just because it reduces our relationship with God to like a manipulative transaction, like our generosity becomes a manipulation. Um, and God never promises us a specific amount of financial gain when we're generous. Now, the, the truth part of this is that scripture absolutely does about talk about God's generosity with us when we're generous, but it doesn't specify how much and in what time and if it'll come in currency, you know, like in dollars or if it'll be something else. So this burdensome theology it coerces people to give beyond what's in their hearts to give, and it coerces people not to give out of generosity, but out of fear of not being acceptable to God. And that's a burden. How many of you feel burdened when you feel coerced into giving? Here's another burdensome theology placed on some Christians. Uh, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. If you had enough faith, you'll be healed. So the burden and the responsibility for getting healed then is placed on the sick person and not on the unpredictably manifested grace of God. So sick person, you better get your act together, start working on your faith in order to be acceptable to God. And if you're not acceptable to God because you don't have faith, then you're not very acceptable to this community. Um, here's another burdensome theology. Uh, you are sinning if you doubt your faith. You're sinning if you doubt and have questions. So doubter, you better be quiet in order to be acceptable to God. Here's another one. If you want to be part of the family of Jesus on earth, you need to vote for Democrats or Republicans, depending on what church you go to. So the burden's on you to get your faith perfectly lined up with a broken man-made political system in order to be acceptable to God and community. Here's another burdens in theology. Anyone recognizing some of these? Have you heard any of these before? Here's another one. God hates divorce. Therefore, a woman is disobedient to God if she leaves the husband who is abusing their child. She shouldn't leave under any circumstances. I was listening to a podcast this week where someone was talking about coming out of a, a Christian culture and community where this was exactly the teaching. This week I listened to, to about 
five minutes of a leadership conference I was invited to listen to over email. I don't even really know what it was. It was just a random email I got. But in the five minutes I listened, I heard these two burdensome theologies. You have the power to define your circumstances with your mind and your faith. Therefore, if you can't control your circumstances and they're not good, you're doing something wrong and you don't have faith and you are therefore not acceptable to God. There's a theme to these, right? Like there's a theme really uh, behind all of these. It's kind of like this. If you can't do this, if you can't perform the right way, you're not acceptable to God. The other one I heard was you will never feel disappointed if your hope is in Jesus. You will never feel disappointed if your hope's in Jesus. Therefore, you should probably, if you want to stay part of this group, you should probably suppress all negative emotion in order to be acceptable. So you can see like how the teachings, uh, these kinds of teachings are heavy burdens on the shoulders of Christ followers and wounding as well, often creating in Christians this sense that they will never be acceptable to God and that they will always be on the outside of community. I mean, I've heard of places where people just felt ostracized because they didn't wear the right thing to church, right? Or they didn't serve the right thing when they had somebody come over to their house. Um, there is the, these sorts of expectations, right, and, and theologies, when in fact the good news of the gospel is that God receives us as imperfectly as we are, and we actually can never perfect ourselves. We can never make ourselves acceptable to God or good enough for God to love us uh, or to earn his grace. So these burdens, they're wounding, they're so heavy uh, that they could discourage someone from following God altogether, which is exactly what the Pharisees did. And Jesus says in verses 13 through 15, he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Oh, you want to come into the kingdom? You want to respond to God's invitation? First, let's see if you can make it through boot camp while carrying this 50-pound backpack. Oh, you can't? Sorry, you can't come in. Why does this happen? Why does this kind of thing happen over and over? Why do Christian leaders fail by putting these heavy burdens on people who would follow Jesus? There might be as many different reasons as there are failing leaders, but the reason Jesus gives in this passage for the scribes and the Pharisees has to do with their pride. It has to do with their self-importance as leaders. And we read in verses five through seven where Jesus says, they do all their deeds in order to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. You guys know what phylacteries are? They're like little boxes that they wore on their robes and their sleeves that had scripture scrolls inside of them. So they would like make their phylacteries extra big. It would be like me walking through the ped mall with like my Bible duct tape across my chest, right? Like I am a woman of God, right? Like that's what they were doing. Um, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So imagine for a minute, you're a religious leader. I don't care what tradition, what time in history, you're a religious leader. And your job 
is to answer questions and to give definite uh, answers to all the mysteries of life. And if you're someone who gets all of your identity and purpose and self-worth from this role of having to know all the answers and giving people all the right answers, then there are probably going to be times where you like make shit up. I mean, pardon my French, because there are mysteries to the kingdom that you can't solve. There are answers that none of us have to the most difficult theological quandaries. Right, but if your job is to have the knowledge and disseminate it and be the expert in the room and your self-worth is all wrapped up in that, then that's what that leader will end up doing. Making stuff up to, to make everything clean and concrete and, and figure out what well, the problem is with these people's faith, right? They can't perform, that's why God is not working in the exact way that, you know, the formulaic way that I think he should work. So, um, People will be tempted to use half-truths to give concrete explanations, to turn mystery into things that are black and white, and then blame Jesus' followers for weak faith when circumstances don't go well. So when these abuses occur, what should followers do? And this is where we get into wound prevention. Jesus gives a strategy, I think, in verses 8 through 10. He says the Pharisees love to be called rabbi or teacher, but he says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but I read this, and like, this is a little weird, Jesus. I don't know how practical this is not to call anyone a teacher. And in fact... Five chapters later, Jesus is telling his disciples to go out into all the world and make disciples and teach them everything that Jesus taught them. So I'm fairly certain that Jesus is exaggerating here to make a point, that he is using hyperbole, uh, you know, that he is saying, like, you need to remember to remain sober about how you weigh the teachings of leaders. We've got to remain careful to use Christ himself as the standard whenever we embrace a teacher or a leader. After saying that they should have one instructor, the Christ, Jesus describes the style of leadership that they should value most. In verse 11, he says, the greatest among you, in other words, the best teachers among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The greatest instructor, Jesus, is the one who humbled himself the most. He had the most to lose. God, who became flesh, took on humanity. On top of asking ourselves then, you know, what our spiritual leader, whether what our spiritual leaders teach us is in line with the teachings of Jesus, it's also important that we should ask ourselves if the teachers we submit to about Jesus things are people who model Jesus-style leadership, right? So are they humble people? Are they servants to others? Or do they exalt themselves as the Pharisees do? Important questions for us to ask. And this is how we can begin to think about wound prevention, like where we can take some ownership over how much stock we put into people who are called teachers and leaders 
not that God didn't give teachers to the body of Christ or pastors or prophets, but that we need to be wise and discerning. Um, we've seen in scripture then how Christ's body can mend the wounds inflicted upon it by failed leadership. But in this passage, um, this is all about wound prevention. And honestly, I really wish this happened more often, that, that, that more of us thought critically and evaluated the teachings that were given by religious authorities. Because I think we could probably prevent a lot of heartache. But in order to do that, in order to evaluate well, we actually need to know the greatest instructor, who is Jesus, the Christ. And we need to not just know his words, right? We need to know his words. We, but we need to not just have them memorized. We need to actually like meditate on them, chew on them, so we have a deeper sense of what they mean. Spend time letting them soak into us. And, and also, we need to know him experientially. We need to allow ourselves to be open and paying attention to the way the Spirit of God interacts with our spirit. The same gospel writer wrote in chapter 20 that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we're able to recognize what it looks like for a leader or a teacher to live a life laid down, for others and not a life that's in it for their own glory, it means that we understand something essential about Jesus and his character. How many of you guys have heard like that bank tellers can spot counterfeit money? The way they get trained is that they just spend a lot of time with the real thing. Have you guys heard this before? Yeah, they just get so, they're trained not to look at the false thing, but to look at the real thing, like how it feels and how it smells and what it looks like. and. Um, I think we could become so familiar with the character of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, that it would be easy then to spot these burdensome teachings, to be like, oh, no, no, we're not going to go there. I'm not going to take that in. Um, how many of you guys just sitting here today um, can think of a burdensome theology that you inherited? Anybody think of a burdensome theology? Yep, see a couple heads. Um, and maybe not all of you are in a place in life where you're like deconstructing your faith and you're thinking about these things on a day-to-day -day basis. I know that when people go through church crisis and they're going through church hurt, this is something you think about a lot. But the reality is that theologies can be burdensome, but we also have other burdens. And, and there are probably many of us in this room who came in this morning with a burden of some kind, whether it's health, whether it's managing our responsibilities uh, with our jobs, whether it's a relationship that's difficult, whether it's, you know, I know your guys' home is kind of in disarray and disaster and you don't know what's going to happen and when. Um, the invitation of Jesus to us when we carry any kind of burden is in Matthew 11 where he says, this is not up here, Jace, come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, for you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you don't know what a yoke is, think back if you ever saw Little House on the Prairie 
when Pa was like plowing the field with two oxen and there was like a bar going across the backs of the two oxen to yoke them together. And Jesus is saying like his yoke, when he yokes you to him and you go under that yoke, it's going to be an easy yoke because you're yoked with Jesus. Like he's going to pull a lot harder than you will. Um, so if that's you today, if you have some kind of burden that you came in here today, I just ask you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that your burden is a backpack full of rocks and it is pulling on your shoulders and your back is aching or your heart is hurting. It's this ugly old backpack. And in your mind, I just want you to see yourself slipping it off your shoulders and handing it to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you carry this. I'm going to be yoked with you now because I can't figure this out. I cannot carry the burden of this relationship. I cannot carry the burden of not knowing about my future. I cannot carry uh, the burden of all these harmful things that were said and done to me. I cannot carry the burden of uh, my job, uh, these finances, these fears I have. I want you to just imagine yourself handing that over to him this morning, and I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to serve us, that you, the God we worship today, the the one whose praises that we sing, you came to serve us. Even though you are a glorious king, you are not a king in any worldly sense because you came to serve us and you are here to serve us by your spirit if we will just come to you and slip off our burdens. I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters in this room, uh, each person watching this morning who couldn't be with us, Lord, I pray that they would know the, the activity of your spirit in their hearts right now, that you would commune with them spirit to spirit, that they would sense your encouragement, your presence, that they could just like take a deep breath and release the, the heavy burden to you. And Lord, I pray that as they follow, as they obey, that they would uh, have great delight in seeing your faithfulness and seeing how you work all things together for good. In your name, we give you praise. Amen.